As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, uh, it's been a pretty eventful summer here in Hong Kong. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's my impression. I guess sort of like here too, but every everywhere that uh, Chinese money has touched this summer, whether it's China itself, whether it's Hong Kong, or whether it's U.S. markets, uh, has been a uh, Quite a wild ride, to say the least. Yeah. So obviously, um, being in the Bloomberg newsroom, it's been kind of nonstop this summer. Uh, so we're talking about the crackdowns, of course, that um, the Chinese party has announced on various sectors of its economy. Uh, it started with targeting Ant Financial back in October. Um, there was a lot of theorizing about why Ant, uh, lots of people focusing on the data that Ant controls. But then this summer, it kind of just spun into a new level of intensity. And we saw China cracking down on for-profit education companies. Uh, we saw it Coming after yeah. Didi, the the ride hailing app, um, saying that they had to you know improve their labor laws, and also that Beijing, the city of Beijing, might actually take them over and kind of make them a state owned enterprise or something like that. It's it's basically been nonstop, and everyone is trying to figure out why now and what exactly is China trying to do. Yeah, that is sort of like the. I mean. You just sort of listed all of these things, and each one of them on their own have been extraordinary. Like the DD thing was crazy itself. Of course, that's like their the like Uber type company. And wasn't that like that was like within like three days of their US IPO, wasn't it? Like it was literally they IPO'd like on a Tuesday or something, and then the following yeah. Monday there was like, oh, we're cracking down. And then some of the companies like these online or these uh, uh, private education companies, some of which are listed in the US, like their business models are like basically going to zero, right? They're like, you're banned. There's, you can't do what you do. I don't know if it's total zeros, but it has been extraordinary. But I still like don't feel like I understand, like, what is the uh, the end goal here? Yeah. So I guess two things on that topic. So, you know, you mentioned um, the DD crackdown happened soon after the IPO. A lot of people are pointing out that this seems like China is sort of shooting itself in the foot. It's going after some of its most successful companies. 
But on the other hand, you know, a lot of what China says it's doing is about improving quality of life. So it doesn't want people to spend loads of money on their education and have to be, you know, really competitive. Um, it doesn't want, well, it wants to protect workers' rights um, for, for DD drivers and things like that. Uh, it wants to protect user data, you know, similar comments that we've heard in the West when it comes to Facebook and Google, right? So, but of course, people are very distrustful of those messages. Um, there's lots and lots of theories going around about what exactly is going on. And today, I am very happy to say that we are going to be bringing back uh, a longtime Oddlots guest. We're going to be speaking with Dan Wong. He's a technology analyst over at Gavacal Dragonomics. And of course, he's been on the show a couple times, one of the best commentators, in my opinion, when it comes to uh, China's tech sector. So really the perfect person. Can't wait. Okay. Uh, Dan, welcome back. Well, it's not for nothing, Tracy, that Odd Lots is my favorite podcast oh. and Tracy Mike Joe, my favorite oh. podcast host. Too kind. Too kind, Dan. <laughs> so I'm trying to think um, where to begin. Um, why don't we start? Well, why don't we begin at the beginning? Um, you know, the crackdown on Ant Financial in October what was your initial thought about that one? Um, because I remember when it, when it happened, people kind of thought this was an idiosyncratic event. Um, you know, there was something specific about Ant Financial, uh, an offshoot of Alibaba, and which is of course founded by Jack Ma. And so people thought this was all about that one company and maybe that one person. But you know, almost a year later, it seems that there's a wider message here. I think the narrative has evolved uh, since the early days of uh, Ant Financial, when uh, about uh, just before the uh, U.S. Uh, election, the uh, Ant Financial's uh, IPO was halted uh, by the Chinese authorities. And so if we draw the line from uh, late October uh, through to June, uh, and now presently we're speaking in September, the first big shock was the Ant Financial IPO. And then the second big shock was uh, the DD IPO, as Joe mentioned, um, you know, facing a, a fairly severe regulatory crackdown in terms of having its app pulled from app stores uh, about uh, a couple of days uh, after its IPO. And so I think when we thought about those two events uh, in isolation, um, it was a really big shock. And we wondered, you know, what exactly was going on? But as this regulatory uh, campaign uh, escalated, uh, as we saw more industries uh, get taken on, I think paradoxically, I think I am uh, at least a little bit more aware that there is um, more of a regulatory theme uh, around uh, governing these uh, internet giants. And so if I wanted to um, you know, put things into different buckets, uh, I would put the first bucket, uh, the first bucket would be made up of uh, Ant Financial uh, and the DD IPOs, in which the Chinese authorities were highly reactive, uh, in which they couldn't really control the timelines because these timelines were uh, controlled by the companies in terms of the IPOs. And so they had to crack down pretty quickly and pretty hard. And then I would cite uh, something like, um, you know, a second bucket made up of items um, that are um, much better studied. Uh, and so in terms of something like the online education crackdown, what we've read from the Chinese Ministry of Education is that the Ministry of Education surveyed around 
19,000 education firms, around 700,000 children, uh, and then over 150,000 uh, parents uh, before they issued these pretty draconian regulations uh, that more or less decapitated the online education sector. Uh, we can also think of other antitrust issues uh, here uh, that have affected uh, companies like uh, Alibaba. We might also be able to think of uh, some things like video games, in which uh, President Xi Jinping uh, has been talking about video games for over the last uh, four to five years. So I think there is a, a little bit of, um, you know, maybe uh, two or three different buckets here. The first bucket are the purely reactive stuff. There's a second bucket of antitrust issues um, prominently faced by Alibaba and uh, Meituan Dianping. And then there's a longer term issue uh, with video games and online education in which the party state has uh, decided, well, maybe we don't like these things very much. So already, this was really helpful. And, you know, obviously, coming at this, looking at this from an American American perspective, it's always tempting to, to try to draw analogies. And when you look at uh, sort of big tech in the U.S., you see a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle with their complaints about Facebook and Amazon. They're kind of the complaints are different. Some overlap, but there's, you know, complaints about the power that they have. And then you have a lot of regulatory actions that take place in the U.S. and Europe and these lawsuits that never seek to that never really seem to amount to anything. Like maybe there'll be a big fine or a bunch of states attorneys general will like sue one of the companies. And then four years later, they have to make some change or whatever. But it doesn't really seem to do anything. Is the angst about the power of tech slash big tech in China comparable with with the difference being that, well, they could do something about it, whereas politicians and regulators here can't get their act together? Or is the angst something different? I think it is more a question of uh, degrees. Um, so first, I agree with you that the ferocity that the Chinese party state um, brought to bear uh, on uh, against these uh, tech companies is, uh, you know, nothing like uh, what the West would do. You know, as best as I can tell, there are some irritating lawsuits that big tech is facing in the U.S., and then some uh, minor fines, uh, you know, somewhat big fines that uh, they are challenging in the European Union. But there hasn't been uh, really, really substantial actions here, whereas the Chinese have acted uh, much more severely. Now, I think I would uh, cite, you know, uh, um, you know, in terms of the type of angst that the Chinese have, I would uh, want to put a framework of uh, maybe four big slogans of the moment, uh, as well as uh, one theme of the moment. And here I'm really drawing on the uh, work of my uh, Trigonomics colleagues. Uh, and I think the four big slogans that we've uh, identified are, uh, first, uh, building the rule of law. This is something President Xi Jinping has talked about over the last uh, three, four years, requires a pretty comprehensive regulatory framework for dealing with uh, different companies. Second, I would cite uh, dual circulation, uh, which is includes a theme to improve the functioning of domestic markets. Uh, third, I would say um, there's something of uh, family values here uh, in which uh, the country just really want um, families to have uh, many more children. And then the big uh, theme that uh, we have been thinking about, the fourth slogan that we've been thinking about uh, right now, is uh, something called common prosperity, which has really exploded in the pages of state media, which is, uh, in our view, something 
uh, reduce inequality as well as uh, social division. And so, you know, if you think about these um, broad uh, interlocking programs, trying to make it easier for uh, families to have children, uh, trying to make the marketplace better regulated, uh, arguably more fair to reduce these uh, antitrust issues, um, to uh, have uh, common prosperity, which um, is uh, a means to you know, stop the wealthy from getting more wealthy, um, and then to improve, I think what they uh, call it is an olive-shaped distribution, an economic uh, distribution that's uh, shaped like an olive. Um, you know, I think the tech companies are all implicated by each of these slogans, but it doesn't mean that tech companies are the will be the only uh, companies that will be implicated by each of these slogans. I think right now the focus is on tech uh, because tech companies are implicated by all four of these slogans. Now, one more big theme is the idea that I think Beijing has decided that well, we are going to prioritize certain technologies over others. Now, I previously worked in California, and I haven't always bought into the idea that consumer internet companies uh, like Facebook or Snap really represent the peak of our technological civilization, that they are the surest signs that we live in some sort of technologically accelerating civilization sort of lamented that among my uh, smartest peers uh, who've uh, graduated from uh, very good schools are much more keen work in uh, hedge funds or asset allocation uh, or uh, the consumer internet companies instead of much harder technologies. And I think this is something that has upset Beijing uh, as well. Uh, you know, one very key line from a major speech that President Xi uh, gave last year was that, well, we can tell that digitization is really important, uh, as we've seen over COVID. But we, what we must never do is to lose our manufacturing sectors because the real economy is uh, absolutely paramount. And as I've said multiple times uh, on Hotbots before, the Chinese government really wants semiconductors, uh, semiconductors, white body aircraft, life sciences. These are much more the technologies that uh, Beijing is targeting. And I think Beijing has sent this a signal, and in, uh, in, in this case, uh, initiated a very severe crackdown to say online education, well, we're not sure that's um, as important as technology as uh, for something, uh, for example, something like chemicals, uh, video games, children really shouldn't be playing too many of those. Um, they should be working in clean rooms uh, for semiconductors instead. I'm exaggerating a little bit there, but I think that is uh, a little bit more of the theme that um, China wants to do regulate the market better, and then to prioritize the right sorts of technologies. Yeah. And I remember um, a couple of days after one of the crackdown announcements, or maybe it was on the day, we did see Chinese listed semiconductor stocks just absolutely spiking. So there was almost a rotation out of consumer tech and into semiconductors. Um, and I have more questions about what exactly China is trying to do when it comes to its tech industry and overall economy. But before we get there, you know, you mentioned some of the key phrases from party speeches, common prosperity, uh, disorderly expansion of capital has been another one that's come up a lot. And I know you're on the record saying that you read a lot of the party speeches, probably all of them, and you also go through like all the party, the official party reading materials, like, you know, the magazines they produce and things like that. And a lot of investors don't tend to do that. So I, I guess my question is, like, should we be paying attention to party speak? Were there hints of this in 
party speeches or things that she had said previously. And do you think that the crackdowns are sort of changing the behavior of investors in the sense that they're going to be paying more attention going forward? Tracy, doesn't everyone read the party's main theory magazine, Qiushe, a translation, <laughs> oh, yes. Seeking Truth, uh, as uh, many of us do? Um, Seeking <laughs> Truth is a uh, magazine that comes out uh, twice a month. Um, last year, I read every issue, and right now I'm still continuing the exercise. It's a beautifully laid out uh, magazine. Uh, it is uh, features these thick pages, well-printed pictures, uh, and a, a lot of the best writers in the party state. And every time I uh, flip through it, um, you know, it's uh, always led by a major speech or a major essay by the General Secretary of the Communist Party, Xi Jinping, in a font that's distinct. Uh, rest of the uh, mag uh, uh, in the magazines, and so if you haven't had uh, the pleasure of holding one of these things, uh, you know I recommend it just for the tactile experience uh, alone. Um, so you know I did read um, you know every one of um, Xi's speeches um, in Qiushe last year, which isn't as arduous an exercise as you might think. You know, one speech every two weeks, which usually isn't terribly long. He mixes a great deal of party speak uh, along with some. Pretty straightforward and frank phrases that are uh, easily comprehensible, uh, and so you know that is his signature style. It's not actually uh, that much work, I think, to engage with one speech every two weeks. Uh, and I think this is something that uh, more of us should be doing. And really, for me, the exercise that um, you know, for me, the meaning of the exercise is that it's really important to see what the party state uh, engages as priorities uh, at the moment. So, for example, you know, if they have five issues dedicated on party history, well, you know, maybe they're not thinking about, um, for example, you know, some other big projects related to the environment, uh, for example. And so, getting a sense of what the major priorities are, you know, I think that is a, a decent way of getting there. I would um, be uh, very reluctant to say that, you know, reading all of the party documents, uh, reading Tiosha, reading the People's Daily is an effective way to do uh, investing. I think, you know, there are millions of these articles uh, a day, can't possibly read them all. And uh, there's also a lot of noise um, mixed in uh, with these signals. Now, you know, when it comes to on online education, I think what we found noteworthy was that President uh, Xi Jinping has mentioning this a couple of years ago. In fact, it's published in his big compendium, The Governance of China, Volume 3. Um, and so, you know, this has been uh, signaled for a while, and the signals really started to escalate uh, over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, and so I think that is a place where we could have had uh, a bit of a fairer warning. The state media gave us a fair warning um, if we uh, only chose to engage it. But that's not to say that, um, you know, we have to be pouring over every uh, People's Daily article. Um, but I think, you know, it is worth uh, keeping, in, uh, keeping in mind what's going on, what the party is saying, what the party is saying to itself, its cadres, uh, and, um, you know, the, the broader world. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. 
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. I think there's something interesting you said. You mentioned that they took the survey. I think you said like 17,000 education companies and then hundreds of thousands of uh, students. You know, the U.S. is characterized as a democracy where there is a sort of direct feedback mechanism between the voters and the government in theory. And obviously, China is not characterized as such. But these things, these actions that they take, such as going after the education companies or such as going after video game playing, say various things like that to improve like family values, as you put it. Is there like this basic like sort of like feedback mechanism where even though there aren't elections per se, as we understand them in the U.S., you still have this sort of like either direct or indirect response from the impulses that uh, parents and families express towards what get uh, turned into government law? There are uh, two main um, sorts of uh, feedback mechanisms um, that uh, the party state uh, really engages. Um, So first, um, it maintains these open um, channels of petitioning uh, where you can see, um, you know, people, usually elderly people lining up to, you know, voice their grievances uh, and then tell, uh, you know, the government um, what they're, 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 they're mad about. I mean, usually these things are higher prices of eggs or higher prices of gas or something, but, you know, that is, you know, one of these things that are out there. And then the other is um, that the uh, party uh, maintains these active, uh, you know, groups of people that are actively soliciting uh, people's uh, opinions. And so this is, um, the survey was something that the Ministry of Education announced, um, you know, surveying 700,000 different parents. Now, I think it is something that's um, logistically possible by the Chinese bureaucracy to do. I'm also aware that, um, you know, for example, I uh, currently live in Shanghai, and I know that the Shanghai government regularly hosts these you know, grievance sessions just to tell them uh, what's going on and, um, you know, what the problems are. Now, uh, whether this can be um, an effective uh, replacement for democracy, I think absolutely not. Uh, you know, there's no uh, mechanism for uh, poor leaders to be uh, removed by the people. This is all done, uh, 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 certainly all done uh, by a party basis. But I think, um, you know, I would uh, suggest that there is a lot of very active uh, surveys of public opinion uh, done by the party state, as well as you know, active solicitation of uh, views by different people. This actually leads to um, the other big question about all of this, which is why now? So, you know, there are these different explanations for why China is embarking on these various crackdowns, um, you know, perhaps quality of life explanations, perhaps solidifying control. But at first glance, it doesn't seem to make much sense to be doing this in the middle of a global pandemic um, when the economy is relatively fragile. Um, China just sort of emerged from the trade war with the U.S., although plenty of people would say that under President Biden, relations have actually gotten worse between the U.S. and China. So what's your take on, on why now? Because they, they could have gone after these respective industries, um, presumably at at any time in in history? That's a great question. And that's something I scratched my head um, a, a bit as well. And so I think the first thing to note is that um, I think what the uh, government realized uh, last year over COVID was that, um, my goodness, a lot of people are using online services, for example, for food delivery or for online education. 
And for the most part, the uh, Chinese uh, internet space has been, I would say, pretty minimally regulated uh, until basically the last uh, two, three years. I think the, over the last uh, five years, um, you know, when I uh, visited a bunch of tech companies um, when I was living in Beijing, you know, they would uh, often say that uh, there are, are fewer regulations relative to the U.S. and relative to every other industry in China. And so I think, you know, I think the most important impetus is that the uh, government realized um, how much more online uh, everyone became uh, last year in China. Probably something like this happened in the U.S. Uh, as well. Um, and so they can't let this be, you know, an ungoverned space uh, for much longer. The other, um, you know, why now um, issue is that I think much more broadly, my view is that China will not open its borders for at least 12 more months, um, potentially for many years. Uh, and I think that's because... COVID is still uh, ravaging quite a, a few parts of the world. And 99% of Chinese don't want to leave uh, China right now. And so there's um, sort of not that many costs to China for maintaining its borders shut. It more or less feels it can manage a lot of these problems. Um, you know, it's certainly not ideal, but it can manage them. And it's better than letting COVID run free in Beijing, Shanghai, and everywhere else. And so, you know, if you remove this idea that um, this constraint that, uh, you know, things can um, only be regulated after things are really good. Well, I'm not sure that they believe that there is going to be a much better time uh, than this. So, again, you know, I, I'm lazily reaching for the U.S. analogies here. But, um, you know, you mentioned the first sort of the antitrust aspect of all this and going after like the really big companies. And I think like one of the sources of anxiety in the U.S. is just simply that, like, there are the big internet tech companies in the U.S., the consumer tech companies, represent a major source of power. And a company like Facebook, I mean, it's kind of like a government. They have like a Supreme Court and uh, an internal checks and balances of what can get published. I don't know how well it works, but it exists. And there's a perception that, say, like Mark Zuckerberg is as powerful as any other politician in the U.S. And I'm curious if in that bucket of regulation, that, too, is a source of the impulse in China, which is just that whether it's Alibaba or Ant Financial or some of these other big ones, that this sort of pure political power or pure power that gets accumulated by some of these companies becomes big enough to uh, rival the state or the party. I think that's definitely underlying motivations uh, for uh, this crackdown as well. Um, what I wonder about is that I don't feel that there is a broad sense among the Chinese people that uh, the CEOs of the major tech companies are as powerful as uh, the politicians. Um, but it's certainly worth acknowledging that the Communist Party cannot suffer any um, perception that major business leaders um, are able to challenge its authority. And um, you know, I think it was certainly offended that Jack Ma was so impudent as to insult the regulators on a major financial forum. The positioning here is, I think this is um, one of these underlying motivations. Um, perhaps these uh, tech companies are, um, you know, sort of the pawns of internal political struggles uh, based on whose family uh, owns uh, which firm. These are some things that um, we understand not at all uh, about. Um, and I think from my perspective, from having lived in uh, China for the last few years, is that 
this has been um, one of the main narratives uh, from um, you know foreign media about uh, why there's been a tech crackdown. And I see a pretty uh, considerable uh, discrepancy here. I think for those of us who live in China are able to see the excesses of these companies uh, on a daily basis, companies like uh, Meituan or the online education companies uh, or uh, Alibaba. Meanwhile, these companies are celebrated uh, elsewhere as uh, having their crime as being uh, only being too beloved. And so I think, you know, that's one of these uh, underlying factors. Uh, but from a lot of people's uh, perspectives, these companies have uh, sort of been getting out of hand and they should be uh, regulated uh, quite a lot more extensively, which the party state is doing. And to offer an example, I think um, I, a lot of the people, uh, a lot of the parents um, I've spoken to, a lot of the people around me would say that parents around them have been pretty happy about this online education crackdown. These online education firms um, have become really good at playing parents off of each other to engage in a zero status game to uh, pay more for their children while making um, their children more miserable. I think a lot of um, what I see the government's efforts uh, is to do a coordination game um, to stop parents from competing with each other and then to coordinate uh, parents against their own children um, to make sure that they don't play too many video games because now they can say um, this is uh, against the law. And so these are, I think, some, some of the other um, backdrops uh, that, that are going on. So when the crackdown on um, education or education tech um, came out during the summer, I remember there was a bunch of commentary from people saying, like, this is so unexpected and so extreme, you know, China basically coming out and saying that for-profit education firms are no longer will no longer be able to generate profits that it meant all of the china market was uninvestable so i'm curious to get your take about what all these crackdowns actually mean for investment in various uh china sectors and also you know you mentioned semiconductors earlier and we know that china um is very focused strategically on building up its semiconductor industry and you've come on the show and talked about that quite a lot but i can't imagine that it needs to squeeze capital out of consumer tech in order to get it into semiconductors um there must be plenty of of money sort of going into that already so I, I guess the question is, what does this mean for investment overall? And is this the best way to get more investment into strategically important sectors? Probably not is my um, gut answer, um, but it's the uh, way that the um, you know, party state has decided uh, to do things. I guess the best uh, way I can um, you know, um, think about that action is, you know, if you sort of just signal to investors online education, you know, you should not be deploying any more capital there. But maybe more importantly, um, signaling to the country's uh, best and brightest uh, in terms of the fresh grads. Now, I mentioned that, you know, at least when I was uh, graduating from uh, college uh, some years ago, a lot of uh, people still wanted very much to work in uh, finance uh, as well as uh, consumer internet. And I think, you know, on the margin, if the uh, party leaders, um, if the government is thinking, well, for the marginal student who uh, can uh, move uh, from Beida and uh, Tsinghua universities, China's best university, 
and um, stop them from going into consumer internet because they know that we in Beijing uh, don't like it anymore and to go work on much harder technologies like life sciences and semiconductors and aviation. Maybe I think that is uh, another one of their motivations. You know, Michael Lewis in uh, Liar's Poker said that you know he thought he would get the marine biology student from Ohio State to pursue marine biology instead. But instead, after he wrote Liar's Poker, a bunch of marine biology students at Ohio State wrote to him and said, how do I get off to Wall Street? Well, you know, I think this is um, a a little bit of um, uh, what the uh, government is uh, trying to fight back against. Now, with respect to what's going on with uh, investors, I think certain types of VC funds um, could be facing pretty considerable challenges um, to their how they deploy uh, capital uh, going forward. But actually, that, that, that's that been uh, one of the questions I've been um, investigating. And in general, when I speak to these um, earlier stage funds, um, VCs and PEs, they would say, well, you know, the crackdown has been severe, but so far it has been limited to these um, segments. And the Chinese consumer market is still very big. You know, there are things like healthcare, there are things like fashion, there are things like manufacturing of um, different goods that don't necessarily uh, have to fall afoul of party directives. And more importantly, for folks involved in the industrial sector or the high technology sector, they're very pleased indeed. So I think these signals are um, doing something to show, well, you know, stop deploying capital in um, uh, technologies we don't like, Uh, go do it in semiconductors instead. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Do you think there's going to be a sort of broader macro impact? Okay, so, you know, you mentioned the sort of sectoral potential rotation, maybe uh, some VC money uh, reallocates towards the harder tech out there. Is there any sort of macro implication with trade flows. I mean, it's interesting that the DD IPO or the DD crackdown was right after a, uh, I believe that was a U.S. listed IPO. 
So there's going to be some change in terms of like where the money potentially comes from. Are you thinking about how this could affect China from that perspective? Yes. Um, for now, I think it's a little bit too early to tell, but I, uh, we've had uh, someone like um, SoftBank um, publicly wondering whether they should still continue to um, put capital into China. And I think this is, um, you know, on the margin, one of these other things that are making uh, people much more hesitant to deploy capital into China going forward. We have um, pretty regular op-eds from George Soros now in the pages of the journal or the uh, Financial Times to you know, talk about why investors uh, should be legally barred from investing. You know, there is this uh, ongoing Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act uh, in the United States, uh, which might delist uh, all Chinese uh, companies who don't comply with um, PCAOB audits. So I think this is one of these additional factors that are uh, weighing on uh, investor sentiment in China. So um, this is something else that uh, I wanted to ask you, but one of the um, things that keeps getting brought up uh, when talking about the crackdowns and China's macro economy is this idea of the German model. And maybe China is trying to pursue something like the German way in the sense that there's particular German regulation um, that sort of tries to boost um, its manufacturing export sector um, and maybe limit some of its financial sector, although you can argue they've done that with um, varying degrees of success. But anyway, um, when it comes to the economic model that China is targeting now, like how do you see it? I think the German model is a, a pretty good um, uh, yardstick. I, the, I came across a, a new term to me recently, Rhineland capitalism. Uh, which is, you know, sort of this middle way um, that the Germans were promoting uh, in the past. And I definitely see that China wants to do more with uh, Germans. You know, I think at this point, Germany is uh, one of the very few Western countries today that have any semblance of, you know, positive, um, warm feelings uh, towards China, mostly because there's a very big autos and industrial sector uh, making quite a bit of money here. Now, you know, being based in Shanghai, I spent quite a bit of time talking with Germans. The um, German industry here really is uh, massive, and they've taught the Chinese to do a lot of different things. And the Chinese, I think, have uh, repaid uh, some of the favor in terms of, uh, you know, outright uh, talking about how they want to be more like Germans in terms of having more of an industrialized economy, in terms of having more Mittelstand uh, companies, which are smaller, medium-sized companies that are are really great at certain industrial niches. Uh, And then in terms of trying to build these vocational schools uh, to make sure that kids can still work for great technology companies like uh, Foxconn uh, instead of terrible technology companies like Tencent. Uh, And so I think there is a a little bit more um, of that sense uh, going on, and especially with common prosperity, maybe we have a bit more of a um, more even income distribution like uh, they do in Europe. So what are you watching for next? I mean, you know, that's sort of the question every it seems like every week or every day there's something new, some new regulatory crackdown. I mean, that was sort of what's been striking about the last few months, just how it just seemed to keep uh, snowballing. What are the signposts or areas that you're curious uh, we might see further action? I suspect that we won't have any more um, sectoral decapitations Uh, Maybe there will still be um, some more things on the margin with video games. Um, It's possible that they will crack down uh, further on things like real estate or with healthcare. 
but this is um, getting, I think, a little bit more speculative. I think at this point, the um, framework for a lot of regulations is now um, fairly complete. Uh, they passed the data security law in June and the personal information protection law in August. A lot of this framework is uh, mostly complete, and I think crucially for investors, now that we know um, what to, um, that there is this, um, you know, common prosperity, dual circulation, family values, and rule of law initiative uh, going on, you know, I think we are, um, we do have our um, expectations set a little bit further. Now, for me, the biggest uncertainty is what's going to go next with the uh, Cyberspace Administration. This is the uh, CAC. And to me, this is um, this is to me the um, most remarkable story of the last um, while, in which um, the CAC, which is a relatively new regulator, and I know it's crucially a um, party organization that has arrogated to itself a great deal of regulatory powers. Now, the Cyberspace um, Administration um, CAC is governed by the state council, but it is a party organization. It is a dual party and state um, organization. And the director of the CAC is a vice director at the propaganda department, which is one of the most important uh, party institutions there are. And so I think investors now are you know, dealing with this uh, very novel regulatory instrument that is now regulating IPOs, that is now regulating financial media, that is now regulating algorithms, uh, and I have no idea what is going to um, regulate next. I think this is one of these big uncertainties. You know, I think foreigners, uh, foreign businesses, foreign investors are a bit more used to the sort of warmly state institutions like the National Development Reform Commission, the People's Bank of China, or the um, uh, Securities uh, Regulatory Commission, CSRC. Um, but, you know, to be directly regulated by a party institution, this is to me very new and novel, and I, I don't know uh, how to think about it. So this is another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, as the tech crackdowns were unfurling, we did see a lot of people talking about what this means for the future of the industry. So China is going after these big companies that are extremely well known, considered to be massive success stories. And then suddenly they're sort of, um, you know, being villainized by the state. What does that actually mean for tech in the sense of entrepreneurial spirit and whether or not people are going to want to go into that sector in the future. That's uh, such an important uh, point, Tracy. And, you know, I think what, um, you know, the the, the worst outcome of um, this ongoing tech uh, crackdown is that it uh, completely destroys the uh, innovative and entrepreneurial spirit uh, in China. Right now, I think it is uh, too soon to say on um, what exactly uh, will happen. Um, you know, I would note that, um, you know, so far when I talk to, you know, uh, friends who are entrepreneurs, um, you know, certainly not um, big success, um, like on the scale of um, Jack Ma, what some would tell me is that they would love to have the problems of Jack Ma. Um, you know, that means that they've made, made it uh, really, really big. And for now, uh, China's um, uh, crackdown has, whenever it comes to a, a personal uh, level, it's really targeted the most elite, you know, dozen or two dozen um, figures that a lot of people uh, can uh, identify on a billboard. And that hasn't really uh, destroyed, I think, um, a lot of the uh, will by people to 
know, still be a, a billionaire. Although um, that, that that they they may not be able to have any confidence in the near term uh, of uh, what to do uh, going forward. And again, I think I would situate um, a lot of these things as a sort of a spiritual, you know, almost a civilizational values question, in which I think the uh, Chinese government is. Accepting that not all types of uh, entrepreneurial uh, hustle is good, I think now that you know China is sort of living through its own um, gilded age. Um, many people have said this, uh, and uh, in the gilded age, you know there were a lot of hucksters and uh, fraudsters uh, out there, and I think that is uh, a little bit of what. Beijing uh, wants to uh, control. And so if it has to suffer some erosion of general uh, entrepreneurialism, well, I think it is saying that um, you can't make profits by, uh, say, creating financial risks uh, as and financial and P2P loans were doing um, in its view, monetizing status anxiety and emiserating students through online education, or by destroying the eyesight and um, the uh, free time of uh, children uh, through uh, video games. Now, I think that is a lot more of what um, Beijing is trying to do to lay down these um, guardrails or these no-go zones. Um, you know, go play everywhere else, um, but these things are uh, off limits. Well, Dan, you've given us another excellent overview um, of all the things that are going on in China, and of course, it is quite a lot at the moment. So, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. That was great. Always a joy. Thank you. So, Joe, it's always really great to have Dan on the show, and, and there's so much to take away from that conversation. Um, one of the things that sort of stuck out to me is this idea, and I don't think a lot of people outside of um, Asia necessarily understand this point, but like the degree to which big consumer tech is actually embedded in China is just on a different scale to where it is in the US and the UK. Like I know everyone uses Facebook, everyone uses Google and and Amazon and things like that. But you know, in China, like WeChat, um, Ant Financial, like these apps are basically like one-stop shops for yeah. living to the extent that like the government has to work with them um quite extensively. And and so from that perspective, you can kind of see why the CCP would view this as a problem. It's almost like de facto privatization of government yeah. functions. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty interesting question. I, and I hadn't thought that about that at all when you said like, well, this is sort of a weird time for a crackdown in the middle of still an, you know, an ongoing pandemic. And Dan's point, it's like this was kind of a wake up call, perhaps to the government of just how just how online the population is. I mean, obviously, the 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 size of these companies has been sort of known for a while, but perhaps it was driven home or greatly appreciated the degree to which. And, you know, it's kind of the same here, you know, the degree to which some of these mega tech companies become the best arms for services. I mean, I think, you know, it's like think back to last April or March. There were a lot of things you couldn't get, but you could like you could always order something from Amazon throughout the entire pandemic. And so the degree to which large tech companies become like this sort of like lifeline is a pretty sort of fascinating thing. Totally. Well, the, the other thing that just struck me is I found it very useful, his like bucketing of these like different things. So there's like the antitrust aspect. 
but also just this idea of like family values. And, you know, it was interesting to hear him describe some of the feedback mechanisms that they get. And I remember it was like a few years ago, it was like one of those like five-year plans or something. It was like, wasn't it like better growth, not faster growth, something like that? Yeah. Wasn't that some cliche right. that was going around? Yeah. And I feel like some of the things he's talking about, like making it easier to have families or making it easier for parents to tell their kids to not play video games on Monday through Thursday because it's against the law or it's going to damage their eyesight or whatever. It's like feels like perhaps in keeping with some of these other like sort of like promises and priorities that the government has laid out. Right. So those promises and priorities, you know, it, if they were being taken on in the West, like, you know, if you saw the United States government um, really tackling the antitrust issues with big tech, or if you saw the government actually cracking down on the high cost and competitive nature of education, you could see like they might actually get some support. But the difference between China and the U.S. system seems to be about how these things are actually getting rolled out. So, you know, in China, you could wake up um, on a summer day and suddenly the government is declaring that education firms are no longer going yeah. to be able to generate profits. Whereas in the States, if you actually got something like that, and of course, you know, you would never get something as extreme. But if you had a measure that was sort of targeting education cost, it would be going through layers and layers and layers yeah, of government yeah. bureaucracy. And, and so you would have it sort of well flagged in advance. And I think that's probably one of the key differences here. Like it's not necessarily what they're cracking down on, but it's the extremity and the way they're doing it. Yeah, the speed and ease and the sort of unilateral decision making, because, right, you could never do it as fast. And I really do wonder whether there are people in the U.S. on either the right or the left. And I think there are who look at what China has done, especially with some of the big tech companies. It's sort of like admiringly <laughs> thinking like, ah, <laughs> oh, you know, we've been wanting to do this forever. And there's no mechanism because we could never agree on passing a law. And there would be like a million layers of courts and regulation and sort of like wishing they could uh, emulate the ease with which uh, China can do some of these things. Yeah, I'm sure there are some parents out there who think that limiting the amount of time people or, or kids can actually play video oh, games is, is a good thing. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. Um, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Dan Wong. He's at Dan W. Wong. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.